Mark 12, 18 through 27. And this is God's word. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we know nothing in and of ourselves. So as an ever-dependent people, we come to you this morning, as we do each and every week. Holy God, grant us the grace, we pray, to understand this, your living word, and enable me, by way of your power, to declare it, to explain it, for the glory of your name and the good of your people, to edify them in the truth, and to bring to life those who are dead to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Um, Jesus makes clear that there is a day coming when every human being will be raised, some to eternal life, some to eternal destruction. There are two roads. There are two ends. You know, most people want to believe that there's life after death, um, albeit most have a very skewed view um, as to uh, what that is and how you obtain it. Uh, fairly recently, Barna, the Barna Institute, um, did a survey that indicates that uh, 80% of Americans um, believe in an afterlife of some sort. 80%. Only about 1 in 10 Americans, according to the survey, contend that there is no life after death. Now, 76% of those responding... Um, believe that heaven exists. 71% say the same thing about hell, but this was very interesting to me. Only one half of 1% think that they'll go to hell following death. 
one half of 1%. In other words, the vast majority of those who believe in some sort of life after death are convinced that they'll end up in heaven, however heaven may be defined for them in their finite mind. Most of which is entirely subjective. Based on what they feel, or based on that which they have adopted from other people's quote-unquote experiences, And when I talk about experience, I'm talking about what we know is near-death experience. You've heard that? Some of the best-selling books on the market, for instance, have to do with near-death experience. Listen to some of the titles. Proof of Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Waking Up in Heaven, All kinds of near-death heavenly experiences uh, by everyone from um, uh, one particular man who was a neurosurgeon. Uh, On the other end, um, a three-year-old boy by the name of Colton, whose dad says that little Colton journeyed to heaven and back, and when he came back, he explained to his daddy that he met Jesus riding on a rainbow-colored horse. That he sat in Jesus' lap while angels sang to him. Now, unfortunately, many ignorant Christians buy into that nonsense. I even read of some Sunday school curriculum of particular churches in our country um, that, is based, that are based on this near-death experience of Colton. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, was actually caught up into heaven. You remember that? And in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I heard things that cannot be told. Things which man may not utter. And for 14 years, he kept that a secret. And he pulled that card out only to support his apostolic authority up against those who claimed to be apostles who were not. And he went on to say this, but to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh to buffet me, to keep me humble. And these clowns are writing books. Friends, that kind of evidence is what many think they need to be certain of heaven. That is man-made, subjective, embellished dreams. Jesus, the one who could have spoken in detail about heaven from experience as the second person of the eternal Godhead chose instead to turn to what Scripture says about God and the life hereafter. Scripture. For Jesus, Scripture, not man, is the starting point and the culmination with regard to resurrection life. Can I get an amen? 
Amen. If you're visiting with us, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for well over a year, and we are currently in the midst of Passion Week. According to Mark's record, it is Tuesday of the final week of the Lord's earthly ministry, the day of questions, as it has been called. He's ministering publicly in the temple area known as Solomon's Porch. While he's preaching the gospel to the people, he's also surrounded by his enemies. The political and religious parties within Israel, they have allied themselves in a systematic attack against Jesus. A classic example of the maxim The enemy of my enemy is my friend. An unholy alliance has been made within Israel, groups of religious and political parties who hate one another are allied against their ultimate enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a battle scene. In masquerading behind the disguises of religious men is the dragon, the ancient serpent, Satan, who is striving at this point to bruise the heel of the son of promise, the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Behind it all is a cosmic battle. The scribes and elders, as you recall, they've played their hand and they failed miserably back in chapter 11 when they approached Jesus with the question, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And that was in response to Jesus entering into the temple courts, turning the tables of the money changers and chasing out a bunch of religious hypocrites. Jesus responds with a question of his own. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? Now, had they rightly identified John, they would have rightly identified Jesus as God's Messiah. But because of fear of the people, they give the coward's answer. We don't know. Well, then Jesus responds, well, then I'll not tell you by what authority I do these things. And they went away. Now, after that encounter, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, Jesus gives the parable known as the parable of the tenants, where he, in effect, retells the song of the vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And remember, Isaiah 5 is one of the most judgmental books in all the Bible. This is when the vineyard owner, God, sends his servants, the prophets. They're abused, and they're killed by the tenants, The tenants are the leaders of Israel. Finally, the landowner, God, sends his beloved son, the Messiah. But instead of respecting him and paying the rent that they owe the landowner, that payment is repentance, they kill the son and throw him over the wall of the vineyard. And there, of course, beloved... With those words, Jesus was foretelling what will happen to him on Good Friday 
where he'll be crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, and then he issues this powerful warning. The landowner will come with his men and will kill the unjust tenants and give the vineyard to others, i.e., the Gentiles. And there he was foretelling what will happen to Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD when that building and those buildings will be raised to the ground, raised with a Z. No need for a temple because the temple's there. Jesus is the temple. All who are in Christ are the living temple of the living God. Verse 12, we read, they went back to the drawing board. They went away, they went back to the drawing board, and then they sent the Pharisees who teamed up with their arch enemies, the Herodians. And then they attempt to lay a trap for Jesus. How foolish. They posed their trick question. It had to do with our relationship to the world regarding taxes. They asked, is it lawful, Rabbi, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar? Answer us, yes or no. Jesus said, give me a denarius. Turning it in his hand, no doubt. He said, whose image is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. He said, good. Then render to Caesar that which is to Caesar, and render to God that which is God's. And by the way, his image is on you. All humanity bears the image of God. Therefore, render to God that which is his. And what's his? Everything. Verse 17 says, they marveled. So now, after all that, the Sadducees take the floor. The Sadducees, they enter in, and they want to take their shot at Jesus with yet another question, this time concerning our relationship to the life hereafter. Life in the world to come. The topic, the resurrection. A question that comes from those who, verse 18, do not believe in the resurrection. The hypocrisy of all hypocrisies. So before we look at the text, we need to know something about the Sadducees. Okay? The Sadducees were the original theological liberals. They were opposite of the Pharisees who were the legalists of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hated one another. Pharisees, legalists, Sadducees, the liberals, the Sadducees were also the aristocracy of Jerusalem. They were the blue blood, so to speak, the wealthy, urban, sophisticated class with more degrees than a thermometer. A very small group, but very powerful. Very powerful. They exercised great influence, having one hand in politics, the other in religion. I mean, they, they operated the temple. They were in charge of, of the priesthood, and as you know, they, they benefited greatly from their operations in the temple court. So naturally, they were outraged when Jesus entered in just a day before this, overturning the tables, chasing out the money changers, because for them, the Tao crashed that day for them. They were furious. Now, 
regarding the Bible, the Sadducees accepted only the authority of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the authority of all prophetic writings. They rejected the authority of the Psalms and wisdom literature. They denied the existence of angels. They denied all the supernatural elements of biblical faith. We would call them the deists of the day. The deists believe that God created all things. He just kind of set the timer and he steps back and lets things carry out for themselves naturally. He has no part or involvement with his creation. Deists. The Sadducees were primarily known for their adamant denial of the resurrection from the grave. Their adamant denial of the resurrection from the dead. So here you have another group of adversaries, another group of enemies who want to take their shot at Jesus, foolishly attempting to bring another gotcha question. You know, it, it is foolish to joust with certain people intellectually or verbally. Amen? You ever try that and they just bury you? Who in the world would attempt to joust intellectually with Jesus? Let me tell you, these fools. Another group of fools. So here they go, verse 18. And the Sadducees came. Sadducees came to him, who who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Notice, they come sounding so respectful. But all they are is masking their unbelief under religious language. So their pretended reverence for Christ and the word of God, it's mockery. Notice, teacher, teacher, Moses wrote, and here they are attempting to use scripture against the author of scripture himself. The word of God in the flesh. But if you don't recognize him as who he is, what fear is there, right? So here they are using the Bible in a very evil way. Remember, the devil quoted scripture, friends. In the temptation account, Luke chapter 4, he took scripture, you know, it is written, and then he twists it. That's what he does. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Know what it means by what it says. Friends, know this. Even when evil seems to have the upper hand, as it does here, as it did in the wilderness, when Jesus was driven out by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan himself, remember who drove him out there, right? The Holy Spirit drove him out. Every time evil seems to have the upper hand, be certain to know Jesus was always in control. What about when he was crucified? He was in control. He was in control of the timing of his crucifixion. It would be on the Passover because he's the Passover lamb. 
Therefore, that night in the upper room, when Judas took that bread and dipped it in the sop, the moment he put it in his mouth, the scripture says, and then Satan entered him, and Jesus looked at him and said, what you do, do quickly. That was a command. Always in control. Every situation. He controlled the moment in his humble state of humility, that is, in his incarnation. And let me assure you now, the resurrected, risen Son of God, the God-man who has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, all authority is his now in heaven and on earth. So he sees through every facade that's erected by man. He sees through every game man attempts to play. He's in charge. Friends, he's not controlled by man. He's not confined by man. Jesus doesn't need permission to do anything. You know, you hear Arminians often say, well, he can't come into your heart unless you give him permission. That's nonsense. Are you kidding me? You kidding me? He makes you want him. If he's after you, who was it? Who, who coined the phrase, the hound of heaven? Was it Augustine? If the hound of heaven is after you, he'll change your want to. Amen, believers? Amen. Did you just brilliant, wake up as a brilliant theologian one day and say, you know what? I'm going to run after Jesus. No, he was after you, and he found you, and he changed your heart. He rose you from the deadness of your soul. He changed your will. Your will wasn't free. It was bound to your nature, which is fallen. He raised you up, and that's what changed your will to want him. You don't control him. He's in control. He was in control here. He always will be in control. He's the sovereign God of the universe, and here he's in a human body, and these fools want to put him to the test. Don't do that. Ever. Don't ever put him to the test. These hypocrites use scripture to dare test Jesus on the resurrection, a group who doesn't believe in the resurrection? Notice they bring scripture, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and following. That's the text, and that's known as the, the, the so-called um, law, leveret law. Um, literally, the law of the brother-in-law. Okay, that is to say, um, let, let's, let's say a man dies, and the widow is left childless. Well, it would be the husband's brother or the nearest male relative's responsibility to marry that widow in order to, to raise up a seed in the deceased father's name. So the firstborn male would be the heir of the dead brother. This is one of the principal themes in the book of the book of Ruth, thank you. The book of Ruth. The kinsman, redeemer. You see that throughout. So it was designed to keep property um, and estate matters within the family. It was the law of the leveret, the leveret law. We don't practice leveret marriage today, amen? Why is that? Well, it's no longer necessary since God is no longer building a tribe as inheritors of old covenant promises. Because the king has come. Christ has come. He's the covenant, what? Fulfiller. 
He's the covenant fulfiller. And he is redeeming a people made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation for himself. So here, they take a biblical truth. So here's a truth of the day, a biblical truth, and then they go on and use it and create a ridiculous, absurd scenario. Read it. Look at it. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now let's stop here for a moment. You know, I'm no statistician. <laughs> right? But, 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 but allowing for very bad fortune in, in horrible mortality rates of the first century, this is a stretch. Look at this. You know, if I were brother number four, I'd be running for the hills <laughs> from this woman. That the black widow spider derives its name from this gal. <laughs> but as it's been said, she loved her husbands to death. <laughs> Ouch. Okay, let's think of it from the lady's perspective. Imagine. Imagine, you're, you're this woman. You get married and widowed seven consecutive times, and you don't even get to change in-laws. You're trapped. <laughs> brother after brother after brother after brother. Widowed seven times, no offspring, something that happens all the time. Friends, it's so ridiculous, it's hilarious. And some believe, because it's so absurd, that this, per, this could have been a particular Sadducean joke used for poking fun of the Pharisees who believed in resurrection. It's absurd. So after seven husbands, the, the hard luck widow dies, okay? That's their pretext. Presented to Jesus. So now imagine relishing within, so proud of themselves. They spring the punchline and they throw out there now this great conundrum. They think they've got him trapped. The folly. What folly? Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, ha 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 ha. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. They've all been intimate with her. Whose wife will she be in the <laughs> resurrection? So the question is dripping with sarcasm. Coming again for people who don't believe in the resurrection. This is the kind of question unbelievers love to ask. Where did Cain get his wife? As though that question is going to bring Christianity down. Those fools still ask it to this day. Answer, Adam and Eve had many, many, many sons and daughters. Cain probably got his wife, or was probably a cousin or something. The gene pool wasn't contaminated yet. So here they are. I'm sure they're patting themselves on the back at this point. 
Well, we've got him now. What's he going to do with this one? Again, Jesus sees through it all. He sees through the intent of the question. It's laid out there in order to trap him. But notice Jesus comes back with a double rebuke, a double indictment in the form of a couple questions of his own. Notice, verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Okay, now, this is amazing. Because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. You're a bunch of ignoramuses. Look, this is about as harsh a criticism that a priest could receive. And remember, Jesus says this in front of a multitude of people. In the temple courts, Solomon's porch, where Jesus was walking back and forth, preaching, we read in the other accounts, the gospel. That's when they approach him. Jesus says, basically, you know, you're, you're not as competent in the scriptures as you all think you are. Now, before he shows how they are wrong, he explains why they know so little. And like any anti-supernatural theological liberal, you don't know the scripture, you don't believe in the power of God. You get it? Friends, you can trace, friends, listen, you can trace all heresy, all religious error, all spiritual ignorance to these two facts because they go hand in hand. Ignorance of the scriptures and not knowing the power of God. Beware. Not knowing the scriptures, you can't know the power of God because everything begins with a right understanding of the living word of God. Everything. If you err there, you are misguided and led astray. It's the point of application before we move on. Scripture declares in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God what? Said. He spoke and the universe came into existence. He said, let there be and there had to be. Amen? There had to be and suddenly out of nothing the universe is birthed by way of his omnipotence. Divine design. Supernatural power. Those who try to deny the creative power of God in Genesis 1, what they do is they substitute theology for mythology, superstition, and magic. Dangerous. That is out of nothingness comes the universe by itself. That's foolish. God spoke and there was, amen? Now, sometimes gullible Christians will buy into the nonsense that through the animal line evolved the stamp image of God in man. Let me tell you, if you believe that, repent, because you are a fool who believes not the scriptures nor the power of God. Don't go there. Don't go there. So failing to understand the scripture is to be deceived. It is to be led astray by emotionalism, pragmatism, and or mysticism. Many like that today. Friends, that's why we teach the Bible. 
Because getting to your mind is the most important thing. If you don't get to the mind of the person, you never get to the heart of the person. Amen? Our minds must be changed, conformed to God's word. That's why we're not here to entertain you. We're not here to whip you up emotionally and, and, and blame it on the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is a lot of churches get all whipped up in emotionalism. They do crazy things. And you go, that's totally unbiblical. But then they say, well, the Holy Spirit was leading us. We don't know what we were doing. That's foolishness. We're after the mind. We're called to teach your mind. R.C. Sproul says this. Listen to this. The word of God can be in the mind without being in the heart, but it cannot be in the heart without first being in the mind. So we're after your mind. Cults and the philosophies of men, what are they after? Your mind. God comes with his word. He's after your mind. He transforms the heart by how you think. There are peoples like the Sadducees today, believing only what they can perceive with their finite mind. And they maintain what kind of hearts, friends? Hardened hearts. There's a warning. If you're one of those kinds of people, there's a warning in Romans 2. Listen to this. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For on that day, when according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, all masks will be torn off. Every soul will stand naked before God. No hiding. No secrets. Notice, Jesus gives his answer. Notice. And his answer is designed to show us that God raises the dead indeed, He will raise them on the last day, no doubt about it. And also this, that earthly relationships do not continue as they are here in the eternal state. Okay? That's that's our next step. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So not understanding the scriptures, they did not understand the power of God to completely change and reshape life in the eternal state. They didn't get it. Friends, it's not going to be exactly like it is here. And notice, you're not going to become an angel. He says you will what? Be like. So don't ever think that we become angels. You know, my little brother died a few years ago. Five years ago, I go back to visit my folks at that time of year, that's where I was. And I have some relatives, we were out one day on the day that he died having lunch at my sister's house and one of my nieces, as the wind blows, she says, well, there's AJ blowing the wind for us, making it pleasant. I go, that is ridiculous. (laughs) He has nothing to do with the wind blowing right now, okay? He's not some angel. He's with the Lord of glory by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone who controls the universe. Amen. You'll be like, you won't become, you'll be like angels. So that tells us that there are not 
72 virgins waiting for the martyrs as in Islam, right? It also tells us that men will not have multiple wives and, and continue to create countless spiritual beings that will repopulate, repopulate the next earth as in Mormonism. There's no marriage, there's no marital, marital intimacy there as there is here. Now, sometimes couples with troubled marriages, they love that verse. They call it their life verse. <laughs> but those of us with fantastic marriages, those of us who have spouses who've died and have gone to be with the Lord, let's admit that that verse is kind of disheartening. No marriage in heaven? The intimacy that I share with my wife, it'll be no more? Well, friends, marriage as we know it, especially the, 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 the sexual intimacy within marriage, will not exist in the future. And that's really what the Sadducees were after when they raised this ridiculous question. It's not because the sexual union is not pure and good and holy and a precious gift of God. Hebrews 13.4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and, adulterous, and the adulteress. Friends, know this. You will see and you will recognize and you will love your spouse there more perfectly and purely than you ever have here. So heaven will not be less than ever. Heaven is always more than. It's always more than. So the greatest moments in this life cannot be compared to the glories of heaven, cannot be compared to the presence of God, and it cannot be compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb for which we all who are in Christ will participate. That marriage. We can be certain, beloved, that whatever physical or sensual pleasures one experiences in this life through marital in intimacy will only be magnified and intensified in heaven. Have you ever thought about it? I've thought about it, and I've thought about it in ways that I can't really explain from the pulpit, but I came across a writing from John Edward, Jonathan Edwards, who basically communicates what I've been thinking for a very long time, which made me feel like a theological giant. Because <laughs> I'm really an imbecile. I never read that this, until this week. Listen to this. Quote, listen carefully. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind, that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. End of quote. Take that one to the bank. You'll never be more alive, as I said earlier. You'll never be more alive than the second your body dies here. 
The moment your body dies, you'll never be more alive when you're in the presence of God. So all of earth's greatest pleasures, relationships, exhilarations, successes here on earth, friends, they're only hints of what awaits in heaven. Hints. You believe that? So you can kiss your spouse, love your spouse, and know that what's in store is something greater that will be experienced minus the intimacy that you share here. Whatever that's like, I think Edwards kind of kind of wrapped it up and put a little bow on it for us. But you know, sometimes we're like the Sadducees, aren't we? Because we assume that the way in which we experience both physical and, and spiritual pleasures now is the limit, the limit for how we will experience them in heaven. So many times, what do many of us think? Heaven can wait. Especially when times are good. Things are so good, I don't really want to go to heaven right now. Right? Wasn't there a movie called Heaven Can Wait? So if we think like that, Jesus says to you and he says to me, "Um, you are ignorant and you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Amen? Okay, notice now, having told them why, Having told them why they know so little, Jesus now shows them how they are so wrong. This is great. Notice verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Jesus quotes there directly from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, you know, the burning bush incident. They didn't have chapter and verse breaks back then. They came much, 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 much later. So if you reference something in the Bible, you would say, you know, the burning bush incident. That's what Jesus does. Notice what Jesus does not cite. If you want to talk about the resurrection, I think that, man, he should have gone to Job. 19, Job was a contemporary of Abraham, right? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall what? See God. 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham spoke those words. Jesus doesn't cite it. Nor does he cite Psalm 16. Notice verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Ultimately, Jesus fulfilled that passage. He would not be left in Hades, the place of the dead. He entered Hades, the place of the dead. In other words, like the Apostles' Creed, when Jesus descended into Hades, it means he really, really, really died. Because early on in church history, there was a false teaching that Jesus didn't literally die. Amen? He doesn't cite Psalm 49, 15, that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Or Psalm 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Or how about Daniel? Look at it. Chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Instead, and there are many, many more, but instead, notice, Jesus used, he used here for his proof text a passage from, guess where? The Pentateuch. 
the only part of the Bible they believed is authoritative. Notice, have you not read, you fools? Jesus speaking to them, you fools. Have you not read what you profess? Look, and by the way, as a side note, Jesus affirms what many liberal scholars deny today, and that is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus calls it the words of Moses, the book of Moses. Amen? I mean, this is an in-your-face moment right here. The Sadducees revere the writings of Moses above all others. And here's Jesus who has the audacity to retort, have you not read the book of Moses? See, the fundamental argument of the Sadducees, beloved, is that Moses did not teach the resurrection. And by the way, they had a strong argument because there is no explicit reference to the resurrection. However, Jesus, the word of God in human flesh, he's no spinner of words. He's no spinner of phrases. He is the word incarnate who understands the true depths of Holy Scripture. And notice, underscored three times, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He spoke that to Moses when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that time had been dead for hundreds of years. You see this? Notice, or actually I don't have this, but later on in the burning bush incident, remember when God says, to Moses, you know, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. I hear the cry of my people, I'm going to send you to deliver my people. And Moses says, but Lord, when I get there, you know, they're going to think I'm nuts. And when I say that you sent me, who shall I say you are? The God, and he said this, the God of your fathers, when I say the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Not I was that I was, not I will be that I will be, but I am that I am. I am. There's a bug on the podium. Bugging me. In other words, the living God is the God of living men. He takes them to the text, the only text, the only part of the Bible they believed in, and he makes fools of them. In other words, look, God is not tied to tombstones, amen? I'm the God of Abraham. Can you imagine God in heaven? There's like like a graveyard, and you're taking a tour, and you go, oh, you see over there? That's Abraham. Oh, Abraham, we had a good time on earth together. Boy, did he walk by faith. And you remember Isaac, of course. There he is. His grave is over here. And, you know, we had a few hundred good years together, Abraham, Isaac. You remember Isaac's name? His name means what? Laughter, because after all, when I promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, Sarah laughed. Therefore, I said, name him Isaac, because Isaac means laughter. And then there's Jacob. What a rascal he was. You know, until, of course, I renamed him Israel. But they had their time, and now I'm on the move with others. No, I'm the God of the living. They're alive which means he's God of resurrection. 
Jesus, they believed in Jesus by faith long before Jesus came, amen? They were alive in Christ by faith. By faith they walked. Faith in Christ looking ahead to God's promises. Look, for instance, at Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died by faith. These all, context of this part of Hebrews 11, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having, the, having seen them and greeted them from afar off. Look down at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire what? A better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, never make the mistake of reading the Old Testament as the Christian form of the book of the dead. Because Jesus says right here, it's the book of the living. They're alive in him. What did Jesus say of Abraham to the Pharisees that day? In John chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, and Abraham, Jesus said, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was what? Glad. God ordered Abraham up that mountain to sacrifice his only son Isaac, foreshadowing the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And right before he was ready to thrust the knife through the chest of his son, God, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who was there, stopped him. And what did he see when he turned and looked to the side? A ram caught in the thicket. God provided the sacrifice. God will provide the sacrifice. His son, Jesus. He saw his day and rejoiced. What about Moses? Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Who's the reward? Jesus. Because he is everlasting life, which we'll see in a moment. You know, Jesus basically says here, you know, if you boys really read the Bible, you wouldn't ask me such a stupid question. You don't read the Bible. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the power of God. You ask me this question? Final rebuke, verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. In other words, you're self-deceived. You're in a world of trouble. You're seriously mistaken. Friends, if these Sadducees remained in that condition, guess where they are today? In hell. Where Jesus said there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be tormented by God, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of Jesus is eternally in hell. Revelation 14. It's a frightening thing. So let me close. Pay attention. Resurrection is much more than a doctrine. Amen? Resurrection is much more than a doctrine. You can believe in the doctrine of the resurrection and still not believe in the resurrection, biblically. Amen? You can believe in the doctrine of resurrection and still not believe in the resurrection because the resurrection is not a mere event. The resurrection is a person. 
Remember when Lazarus died? He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha call for Jesus. He's in another town, send a messenger, and he waits two days. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is four days dead in the grave. Martha runs up to him, cries out to him. Look at John 11, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You cannot know, friends, you cannot know the person without knowing the doctrine. But I promise you, I promise you, you can certainly know the doctrine without knowing the person. Why do you think that the majority of Americans think they're going to heaven when they die? Because they believe in a resurrection, but yet they're going to find out. Because they deny Christ now, they don't believe in the person who is the resurrection. So you can believe in the doctrine without believing in the resurrection, and Jesus is the resurrection. If you're here, friends, if you're here and you hold on to some foolish thinking that I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person, you're deceived and you do not believe in the resurrection, Jesus Christ. You need him to save you. You need a substitute. Let's close with this. John 5. I don't have it. You're going to have to open to it. John chapter 5. Uh, These verses are both very encouraging and uh, somewhat frightening at the same time. Look at it. Beginning in verse 22, John chapter 5. This is the words of Jesus. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly. In other words, listen up, listen up. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, don't make the mistake, beloved, as though Jesus is teaching justification by works. If you're good enough, you get in. That's not what he means. The good in this context is Jesus himself. He's the only good one. He's the only one acceptable to God. He is the good. And only those who are truly in him will be accepted. And evil is to reject the Son because Jesus is the gospel. He's the good news. Amen? Do you know him? 
Let me say a word about once we're in heaven and we have loved ones who are in hell. You ever thought about that? I've thought about that. But let's make sure we understand the scriptures and the power of God. Because, beloved, I think we find it hard to believe that we can possibly be eternally happy in heaven with the, with, with the Lord, knowing that some of our loved ones are in hell. But again, that is to, be, to, to see things from a very human perspective, from a very fallen state, as we're still affected by sin. Because then, beloved, on that day with the Lord, we're going to be able to evaluate reality apart from the influence of our fallen nature, and we're going to see everything as the Lord sees it. Therefore, we, we will be able to fully rejoice in everything that brings glory to God, including the punishment of unrepentant sin. Guarantee. Guarantee. When we see him, we will see him as he is, and when we see him as he is, we will then be like him. We will see perfectly the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, will enable us to see what all things truly are, who he truly is, and we will be able to rejoice in the punishment of sin. And if we don't believe that, then we don't believe and understand the scriptures properly or the power of God. So let us be careful. So the question this morning, beloved, is not whether or not there'll be marriage in heaven, not whether or not we will recognize people in heaven, because we know we will. If you recognize them here and you have a sinless mind there, will you not recognize them there? Hello? Of course you will. But that's not the question. The question this morning is, will you be there? Will you be there on judgment day? Are you prepared for death this morning? Do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? If you think you are, you're not prepared for death. Because God demands perfect, holy perfection, and there's only one who's accomplished that, and that's his son who he sent. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. And we're going to see the gospel proclaimed here visibly at the table, whose body was crushed, whose blood was shed, because on that cross, what did Jesus bear? The wrath of God, which is hell. He didn't go down into hell, hell descended on him on the cross. That's what he bore. Therefore, all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, the son, the perfect one, the only good one, will have what kind of life? Everlasting life. And the one who died and rose again and ascended, resurrection life, that he is. And you too can be certain of your own resurrection. He alone conquered sin and death. He conquered the grave. He's the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn of many brethren. We will share in his resurrection. What do you say to the thief on the cross if you die today? Remember me, Jesus. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Most assuredly, he said, today you'll be with me where? Paradise. So death is swallowed up in victory, amen? O death, where is your victory, says Paul? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Call on him this morning and you will be saved. And believer, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus?
then make sure you're certain of your own. Amen? What's his is yours. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for resurrection life that we have in Christ. We thank you that we're able to see here the folly of men time and time again. May we not take it for granted, the precious teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, to address all these, I think I got you questions. So that we ourselves will always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect to a lost and dying world, to encourage, others, to one, to encourage one another along the way as we face many obstacles in life and even death itself, to be certain because of Christ we will rise. In his name we pray.